Well, good afternoon, everyone, and a good Lord's Day to all of you. Uh, it is a great, great pleasure to be with you here today to share your fellowship and to enjoy word and sacrament with you and to worship our God together. So thank you. Uh, thank you for your warm welcome and, and what a joy it is to be here. And uh, we keep you in prayer often. Uh, this ministry here in Oklahoma City, we uh, <clears throat> uh, keep you in our thoughts and our prayers, and not just praying for uh, Stephen and Gracie, of course, but uh, praying for all of you, and uh, that the Lord will bless this work, and we'll continue to pray to that end. And uh, and um, now that our first grandchild is going to be a member of your congregation, uh, you might see us a little more often, for better or for worse. Uh, we'll, you might... Uh, Get used to us popping in now and again, and uh, I hope you don't mind that. Let's turn to God's Word together, uh, to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. And let me uh, just <clears throat> set a little bit of context here for our scripture reading. Uh, Micah was a prophet who was a contemporary of Isaiah in the 8th century B.C., a very tumultuous time uh, for the people of God as uh, the uh, Assyrians had uh, all but uh, finished off the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Babylonians were about to do the same in, in, in Judah. And uh, so Micah, being a contemporary of Isaiah, lived through uh, some of those great events, uh, the, the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib in 701 B.C. And, and uh, in the midst of all of that, um, there's this wonderful word of hope in Micah chapter 4. And I, th I thought it would be a good passage for us to focus on today because I also think it's a text that's encouraging to you as you are in the midst of the work of church planting and a lot of that has to do with reaching out to, to, to people with the gospel and wanting to see the kingdom grow and the church grow. Um, and this is a passage that encourages us and reminds us uh, that God is, in fact, building and establishing his church in this world and bringing people into it by his grace. And so it's something that we should take heart in as we uh, look for and pray for this work to go on uh, here in Oklahoma City and elsewhere. So let's look to Micah chapter 4, and we'll take the time to read the 13 verses here of, of chapter 4. So let's hear the word of God together. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. 
In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. Therefore you shall be delivered there. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. And we'll end our reading there. May God bless his word to our hearing this day. Well, I think this chapter here, uh, nestled in the book of Micah, is one of the great gospel treasures that we find in the Old Testament among the minor prophets. And uh, it is a text that could easily take six or seven sermons to expound this entire chapter. It's, it's very deep and very rich. But I think we're going to look at the whole of it today and just see the main point of it today. And it's very encouraging in what we see. Uh, taking a bird's eye view of this chapter, what we see is nothing less than, again, a heartening picture of the promise of God that the coming of Christ would establish his church in this world and that he is determined to heal and to forgive and to save many sinners like you and me. And that he is still doing that work among us, uh, among us here today in this room, but also among us in our world, growing his church and bringing people to him. So uh, that is the hopeful message we're going to see here in Micah chapter 4. Now, as we begin to look at the chapter, let's notice how it transitions from chapter 3. Look at the very end of chapter 3, and it's a transition of contrast because chapter 3, verse 12, pictures the ancient church at that moment in time and God's uh, pronouncement of judgment upon them. It says, um, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. So uh, there was a picture of the Temple Mount being just leveled, brought low, which would happen uh, in that contemporary time period. But we move quickly from that to chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on top of the mountain. So a great contrast between the state of the church, the ancient church in that day, and now a look forward to a, a great work that God is going to do in their future. All right, a prophecy of a glorious work in the establishment of his church. 
Now, chapter 4 begins with these words. It will come to pass in the latter days. Now, the, the latter days, or the last days in the Bible, is universally used, really in Old and New Testament, uh, to talk about the time period in between the first and second coming of Christ. All right? And that would be the time period in which we live. The latter days began when Christ came into the world and his work was finished. And then the, the latter days or the last days began. That's how the apostles refer to it. That's how the Old Testament prophets refer to it as well. So there's actually quite a simple method of reckoning time in the Bible. And that is the former days are before the first advent of Christ. The latter days are after the first advent of Christ. And the last day, or in the last great day, is the second advent of Christ, that great day of judgment. So Micah's prophecy here is one that is unfolding in our world today, in the time frame in which we live between the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would say the first three verses of this chapter are probably the best known of this book, of this particular chapter, and they happen to be repeated verbatim by Micah's contemporary colleague, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, the first three verses of this text are repeated verbatim, and so the two prophets living at the same time, repeating the same glorious prophecy, God really wants his people to get this particular message. And what we find here in these first verses is a picture of God's church being prominently and well-established in this world, and a picture of God's word going out from it into the world, and people hearing it, and nations responding to it, and people responding to that word, and coming to Mount Zion to be part of it, flowing to the house of the Lord, and God establishing justice and peace among those people that come to him. It is a beautiful picture, these first several verses. So beautiful, in fact, that it can be hard to believe that the picture that Micah paints here is a depiction of our age. It might be difficult to believe. Now, this, this almost idyllic picture, all the nations flowing to the house of the Lord, does that really characterize our experience and what we see in the world? And so there are many people who say that these verses describe maybe a future state of glory or even a, a future a period of a millennial age that we have not yet experienced. But we must remember this, that in the former days, that is in Micah's time, the church was only one tiny embattled nation, very often unfaithful itself, and at constant war with its neighbors, none of whom knew anything about the one true God. So when we compare that reality to these latter days in which we live, I think we can see the outlines of Micah's prophecy emerge a little bit better and see how it is being fulfilled among us today. Now the first and foremost point is this. Verse 1 pictures the Lord's, the Lord's mountain, the mountain of the Lord being established in the world on top of the mountains, right? Being the most prominent feature in this world is the mountain of God, God's presence through his church in this world. Now, we know that the chief cornerstone of the church has been laid 
And that is Jesus Christ. And that's why I wanted to read Ephesians chapter 2, because it talks, uses the same language as Micah 4 when it talks about the establishments of the church, the, the chief cornerstone, and upon that is being built, and there it is established. That's the same imagery of Micah 4, the establishment of the church. And what Ephesians 2 pictures is when that church was established by the work of Christ in these latter days, in this world like, like never before with the completion of Christ's work. Yes, God's people were, were in the world, and, and he was with them in the world, of course, in the Old Testament times. But there's no doubting that with the completion of Christ's work and the chief cornerstone being laid, that the church is now established like never before. It is being built upon that rock of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Scripture says, which we sang just not long ago, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It pictures a moment in time when that cornerstone is laid and the church is founded. That's what is pictured in verse 1 of Micah chapter 4, that, that unquestionable foundation of the church in the world. Okay, so that accounts for Micah's imagery of verse 1 of the church being established, all right? Now, secondly, we have the image here of nations flowing into the church, okay? Nations flowing to Mount Zion. Now, this has been happening throughout our age, and this is spoken of in verse 2 of our text. Throughout our age, when Gentile converts, uh, like, like most of us here, I imagine, have been called and saved by God's grace. Think about this. Hebrews 12, verse 22, pictures our conversion with these words. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Right? The same language and same imagery as Micah chapter 4. That is what happens when every believer is regenerated and, and comes to Christ. He goes to Mount Zion. In the words of Hebrews 12, that's what happens when a believer is saved. Now, we must remember, too, that when Micah says that all these peoples and and nations are going to flow into it, when he's talking about peoples and nations, uh, these two words that he uses, amim and goyim in Hebrew, amim is people, goyim is, is either Gentiles or nations. When he uses those terms, He's not referring to nations the way that you and I think of nations. When we think of a nation, we think of a, you know, a political uh, conglomerate based upon citizenship, right? Uh, borders and a flag and, um, you know, a political entity that, that someone can join themselves to or, or depart from. But in the Bible, a nation is defined as a ethnicity as a people group as one of the branches of humanity right that's what a nation or what the goyim are that's why it's sometimes called gentiles instead of nations so uh, when micah says the nations are going to come to mount zion he's not talking about those political associations as we know them he's not talking about france or germany or japan or canada right but he's talking about all the people groups of the world, all kinds of people. Again, not modern political entities. And so when we think of it that way and we realize that's the crux of his vision, then 
we see this prophecy has indeed been the hallmark of our age in these latter days because all kinds of people throughout the world have come to faith and have come to Mount Zion. Now thirdly, verse 2 of our text says that out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now that, of course, was inaugurated by Christ in the Great Commission uh, after his resurrection, before his ascension, when he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all the, what, all the nations, all the people of the world, all kinds of people the world over, right? Jew and Gentile, everyone. And remember how the spread of the gospel began in Jerusalem and how it emanated out through the world just as Micah pictures it here in this chapter. And you'll recall just before Jesus' ascension, he said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, right? So it begins in Jerusalem, the word of the Lord goes forth, Samaria, Judea, and then the end of the earth, all the way around the globe. And here we are today. You, Oklahoma City is the end of the earth when you, when you think about where it started from Jerusalem, right? Here we are. We're, we're Gentiles at the end of the earth. We heard the word of God, and we just came to the mountain of the Lord today. We came to him today. Uh, all of this is unfolding in our very own experience of faith. And so this has been a hallmark of the gospel age, the word spreading from Jerusalem around the world and even to us this, this afternoon. Now, when we come to verses 3 and 4 of our text, it's these verses that might seem to bring us into the realm of eschatology. Eschatology is simply the study of last things. And because these verses, verses uh, 3 and 4, uh, seem to present to us an idealized picture right, of, of these people not waging war against each other anymore, All right, no more warfare, and everyone sitting peacefully under his vine and his fig tree, just a, just a, you know, a picture of contentment and peacefulness, all right, but this language is familiar from the Bible, all right, it's not necessarily a look forward to some millennial age that we have not experienced yet, um, or the state of glory, it's actually a look backward. It's a look backward. It takes us back to the reign of Solomon. When Israel was united and prosperous under Solomon, had peace on every side, was united under one king, a son of David, and had prosperity. First Kings chapter 4, verse 25 says this, Solomon had peace on every side all around him, and Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and under his fig tree. All right. So that language, that terminology is a picture of God's people at peace. And it takes us back to the reign of Solomon. There's another thing in this passage that indicates that we're, we're taking a look backward here. We're borrowing from history. And that is verse 8 where it says, in the middle of that verse, to you shall it come, even the former dominion, the former dominion will come to you. All right. And again, just previous to that, we had a picture of the former dominion of, of Solomon and the peace that God's people had under him. Now, why does the prophet here 
Now, picture the peace of the church, peace and unity of the church in the latter days, by going all the way back to the history of Solomon and grab this imagery. Right? Why does he do that? Well, here's why. Solomon was a type of Christ. All right? He was a prosperous and powerful son of David. And as such, he reflected some things typologically what would be accomplished through Christ. And Solomon brought a temporary earthly peace to Israel as a foreshadow of the perfect peace that Christ would bring, which is what Micah is prophesying about. So the imagery that Micah uses here belongs to the realm of typology and not eschatology. Micah uses this familiar language from Solomon's time to depict the peace that Christ would bring. But we should not make the mistake that it is the same kind of peace that Christ will bring to his church in these latter days. It's well known that the early disciples of Christ made that very mistake, looking for sort of a new Solomonic age, right? When Israel, the nation, the, you know, the political entity would, would dominate its neighbors and even the world. But Christ corrected that mistake. And he spoke of another and a greater kind of peace with which he would bless the church. And we'll hear it in his own words in in just a moment. But first of all, let's see it in Micah chapter 4. One of the things we already established is that the nations flowing into Zion are not political entities as we understand them, but all kinds of people from throughout the world. Now, It's important to recognize that they are still the subject of verse 3. They are the ones who are being brought to peace with each other as they come to Zion. So Micah is not saying that the political entities of this fallen world will suddenly stop fighting with each other. Um, And we got a a reminder of that this past week, right, with uh, Russia and Ukraine and wars and rumors of wars and now real wars. And thus it's always been in this fallen world. But what he is saying is that the people of this world will have peace with each other as they come to Zion together. That's where they find their peace, right? People who once had a natural sinful hatred for each other will will only and finally find peace with each other in the church. That's where peace comes from, from Christ Jesus. This is the peace that Christ has given to the church, to you, not to the world. Remember, he said to his disciples, to both Jew and Gentile, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not a worldly peace that he gives. In fact, regarding the world, he said this, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set, you know, a man against his father and a woman against her mother. And you know, you know that passage. The man's enemies will be of his own household. So when it comes to the world, Jesus says there will not even be peace in families, let alone among nations. And that's because of the sinfulness of this world. But. Christ and his prophet Micah assure us that there is a place to find real peace in this world 
the only place to find it, and that is in the church of Jesus Christ, under his dominion, with faith in him and with unity with his people, where we are told there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. That's what's pictured in this passage right here. Those nations coming together to Mount Zion, and there is not Jew or Greek among them. They're not fighting with each other because they have a common, like, precious salvation. Now, today in our world, there's still Jew and Greek. There's still racial hatred in our world, and plenty of it, isn't there? And they're still slave and free. I mean, in the form of things like economic jealousy and rivalry and uh, exploitation and so on. And we also must remember there will still be many in this world who do not go up to Mount Zion. Verse 5 will still be a reality because verse 5 says, all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. That verse still pictures a dichotomy between church and the world, right? And we must also recognize that Verse 13 will still be a reality. Verse 13 pictures a final judgment of the nations, right? Where it says of Zion, you shall beat in pieces many people. Now that's interesting. The people flowing to Zion, those nations and those people, they beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. But at the end of the passage, it says the Zion, you are going to beat the nations, right? You are going to beat them in an image of judgment. All right. So all in all, the first five verses of our text picture the spread of the gospel, pictures the growth of the church, and the fact that only salvation in Christ causes men to be at peace with each other. And what is depicted here has been and is unfolding before our eyes in these latter days. Now, this is important. Our text goes on in verse 6. Describing the same time period, beginning with the phrase, in that day, all right? So the prophet is still giving us a view of the latter days. In that day, he goes on with his description. And it's magnificent what verse 6 pictures. Verse 6 pictures um, uh, the work of Christ uh, gathering and building his church with the humble and the weak of this world the lame, the outcast, right? And what's he going to do? He's going to bring them in and make them a strong nation, the lame and the outcast, the weak and the, 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 those who are estranged in the world. Now again, let's think about uh, Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, using that very same memorable language to depict the ministry of Christ in Isaiah 61. Remember that great quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And you'll remember in the gospels when Jesus was handed the scroll and he read that beautiful passage and he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing and it is being fulfilled in the ministry of Christ today, in these latter days. So, and this is a very important point to see. The people and the nations that are seen flowing to Mount Zion in verse 2 
are the same people that are now described as the outcasts and the afflicted of the world whom Christ is going to gather in verse 6 and 7. So we're not talking about nations like, uh, you know, one nation like France or Germany or Poland. The nations that we're talking about are the lame, the outcast, all the branches of humanity who are just the, the forgotten of this world. Those are the people that Christ chooses to gather to himself. In other words, they are the meek of the earth, chosen from among the nations, and God is pleased to gather them by his grace. Now, in verse 9, there is a very important shift in the whole aspect of this chapter. Because in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 1, all of those verses all have or begin with the word now. Look at verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Look at verse 10. In the middle of verse 10, for now you shall go forth from the city. Verse 11, now also many nations have gathered against you. Chapter 5, verse 1, now gather yourself in troops. Now, 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 now. The word atah in Hebrew. And it is a, um, you know, a, what do you call it, temporal modifier, you know, to switch the time aspect, right? So we were looking at the latter days, but now, now, the vision shifts from then to now. That is, back to the present day of Micah. Now in Micah's time, in the people's present experience. And what do we find now that's happening in Micah's experience? Well, verse 9 uh, pictures her crying aloud, Jerusalem crying aloud. Verse 10 says, now you're going to go forth from the city and to Babylon you shall go. All right, now she's going to go into captivity in Babylon. Verse 11, now many nations have gathered against you. Chapter 5, verse 1, now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. All of that was happening at that current time. In other words, that was their present experience. They were about ready to fall. They were ready to get invaded, encircled, and deported. Now, but, a very important detail emerges in verses 9 and 10. And let me read those verses to you. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. And to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So the daughter of Zion, all right, that is Jerusalem, is pictured as having no king, but she's pictured as being pregnant. She's pictured as expecting birth pangs, expecting a baby. Now this imagery makes a lot of sense when we think about it in connection with chapter 5. Because in chapter 5 we find the famous prophecy of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. But the key verse is the next verse, verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, 
and then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And then it goes on to talk about the ministry of Christ. He will stand and feed his flock and so on. So chapter 5, verse 3 says, she who is in labor. Well, who's the referent of that, right? Who's, who's the pregnant woman in labor? It's the daughter of Zion. We find that out in chapter 4. The daughter of Zion, that is God's people themselves, pictured, you know, embodied as a, as a woman, personified as a woman who is pregnant. And the one who will be born is the Savior in Bethlehem, we are told in the next chapter. So the image here is of Israel, the daughter of Zion, suffering and going into captivity. That's what's going to happen right now, Micah says. But the great point of hope is that she is pregnant with the Messiah, and she will give birth to him in Bethlehem. Now, the reason that the whole nation is sort of personified as a woman who is pregnant with the Messiah is because Jesus did indeed come through the line of Israel from among his people uh, who were expecting him. And so amazingly, uh, Israel's history is pictured like a centuries-long pregnancy, right? The Messiah coming through them waiting in expectation for that moment when he will be born. Now, Micah foresees all this some seven centuries ahead of time. But the Apostle John saw it in retrospect and described it uh, in his prophecy in Revelation chapter 12. Let me just read five verses to you from Revelation 12. In this vision of the Apostle John of a woman giving birth to a king who would rule over all. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So it pictures the woman giving birth, the male child, the ruler coming into the world, Satan wanting to destroy him, to snuff out that seed, Right? But he is unable. God protects him. And he comes into the world to rule all the nations just as prophesied. Now that woman is Israel. That woman is the daughter of Zion in Micah chapter 4. Pregnant with the Messiah. Right? Now, the Virgin Mary, of course, was the human vessel that God used when the time was right. When that moment came. But historically speaking... Historically speaking, it was Israel who was pregnant with the Messiah ever since he was promised to come. So let's take a step back now and put all these pieces of Micah chapter 4 together. First, we are told that in our days, in these latter days, the gospel is going to go out into the world and God is going to gather all of his people from all of the nations and they will swell the ranks of Zion. They will go into Zion, and there, there in the church, 
they will discover peace with each other in an otherwise tumultuous world. But at present, that is to say, in Micah's time, in the late 8th century B.C., the church in the world was suffering greatly and about to suffer even more. But at the same time, she was pregnant. She was pregnant with the very Savior who would come and who would establish the church and bring his people peace, just like verse 1 and 2 and 3 of our text has said. So, right now, you and I live in these last days, those last days that the prophet spoke about. And the mountain of the Lord's house, the church, has been established forever. It has been established. And people are still flowing into it. That time is still now. And that is because the daughter of Zion has given birth. That promised king has come. And he has called us to come to him, to come to Mount Zion, the church of the living God. And as we conclude here this afternoon, I want to take you back to verse 2. Because in verse 2, we get to overhear the conversation that the people are having who are going up to Mount Zion. They've been called by the Lord. They're obeying that call. They're going up out of faith. And this is what happens in our world when people... Go. And so we get to overhear their conversation. What do they say? They say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. That's what the people going to Zion say to each other. Now, there's no better response for us, which we'll sing in just a minute, than to sing these words of Psalm 122b. I'm sorry, 122a. I was filled with joy and gladness when I heard them say to me, and what they say to me is exactly what they say to each other in Micah chapter 5, uh, let us make our pilgrim journey to the Lord's house. Let us go up to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. So that is, I'm convinced, that is the way that we are to respond to this, that we hear, let us go to the house of the Lord, and we sing, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And that should characterize our response. We should be glad to hear those words because we are the ones going to the house of the Lord. And it's a joyful thing to be called, effectually called, by his grace to go up to the house of the Lord. And let me leave you with this. If the people who are going to the house of the Lord, and that's, that's us, we're God's people. We in a, are on a journey, aren't we? Uh, we are going up to Mount Zion. We've come to faith. And yet we are going to that that city that God has prepared uh, in glory for us. We are on a journey to that place, not to Mount Zion in this world, but to the city whose builder and maker is God. And it is our mission in life to call people with the very words of verse 2, uh, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And that's what we're doing here. That's what you're doing here. That's what we're all doing in life. And that really encapsulates our call to the world. Like, that's what we're supposed to do. 
like with you, your neighbors, uh, your, anyone you know, your co-workers, your kids at school with you, whatever. This should be your exhortation to come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Don't say it like that. Say, come to, come to church with me next week. Uh, you know, come to church. We, I have a good church and a good pastor, a good preacher here. Come to church. And uh, that's what the call should be, right? When we're in the world, we should, we should do that. We should call people to come with us to the Lord's house. Not just to church, but to faith, right? To share the gospel with them. And that's what uh, we are encouraged to do as God's people. But in particular, you, all right? You are here by God's call, endeavoring to plant a church here and to spread that word. And so I want to encourage you to think, even this week, even tomorrow, who are you going to come alongside of and say, come and let us, let us go to the house of the Lord together. And may God bless those efforts and that call. And I'll be praying earnestly that he will bless those efforts.